welcome back, and thank you for joining me again this week for the Devil Came Knocking podcast. I have a couple of interviews I had planned on sharing with you this week, but after the shooting in Texas at the school, the timing just didn't feel right due to one of the individual's charges. I will share them in future weeks, though. I do have some new stuff for you this week. I will share Joseph Reisner's first communication with me that I received last week, as well as the information from the appeals that I found interesting about him. I have some huge news in this case. We have found some evidence and a new law that lawyers are currently working on appeals for Dean, Karen, and Crystal based upon. So we were hopeful Tennessee will finally do the right thing. I also have another thing that we need to discuss. I have changed a little bit of Joe's note to protect the names of two individuals who were witnessing this case who are no longer with us. I have also removed a claim he made about one of the individuals because I know it to be false. We will call them Marty and Sue. I have been sitting on information for several months attempting to get proof of the deal that was cut with them. However, it is my belief that Marty and Sue were given 10 care by the state of Tennessee for their testimony in this case. Strange since they were Kentucky residents. We filed petitions with the DA office for their testimony and any deals made with them weeks ago, but who knows when or if we will ever get that. Joe references them in our conversation and their connection to the group. Besides what Joe says about Marty, I also know he was a regular supplier of acid to Natasha and Karen. Here is Joe's letter now. My name is Joseph Reisner, and quite honestly, I'm not sure what to do here. I have started this letter several times, but I'm sort of at a crossroads in my life, and I don't know what I should do, both for my own well-being and morally. Allow me to explain. Other than a documentary filmmaker, I haven't spoken to or interviewed with any what could be called media or professionals in journalism since the day of the crime. I've had many opportunities to tell my side and possibly make my life easier on myself, at least in prison. But that always took a back seat to causing the victims, the families, the friends, more grief or pain or stressing out the Greenville community any more than we already have. I'm not really sure why I even talked with her, other than the genuine sense of her truly wanting to tell the truth. I suppose what I need to tell my side of the events to someone who would actually sit and listen with an open mind. I have to admit I was relieved that her documentary didn't get finished back then, but also I regretted that no one got to see my truth. In any case, I'm just not really comfortable with any of this. If anything should be known, it's that I was never intentionally evil. There was never any cult, despite what Berkeley Bell's rantings, and he knows that as well as anyone. The truth is we were a carload of hurling teenagers who left Kentucky to escape our own personal hells for a little while. For most of us, our lives, and I speak for most of us, 
the adults around us either abused, ignored, or tolerated us. So when Vidar Lilid tried to show us the love of God, we couldn't begin to comprehend his actions. When I heard what Natasha wanted to rob this guy, because my car wasn't going to make it, Vidar was alone, and I didn't know his family was there. I always assumed no one did until they approached at the picnic tables. I really didn't want anyone to get hurt, but I also didn't know that Natasha had been grooming Jason to do whatever she wanted. As it turned out, I wasn't nearly smart, tough, or as capable as I thought I was. When Natasha sent me for, to get the gun, I honestly didn't think she had the gall to use it. And when Jason took it and held poor Vidar up, I didn't trust Jason not to shoot. So I tried to take over. I knew I wouldn't shoot anyone. The reality is that I can't pass the buck here. I may not have killed anyone, but without me, we wouldn't have left Kentucky. And I led the robbery, even after his family showed up. I would have given anything to go back and just say no to any or all of it. But the truth is I didn't, and three people died because of that. And Peter, I don't know what to say about slash to him because we took so much from him until he appeared on the local news about the 25th anniversary of his family's death. I honestly thought he was still a vegetable. I didn't know he had recovered from the attack and made a life for himself. I can't express how good that news was to me. He deserved so much more than what we left him. When I got to prison, I sought out the Jehovah Witnesses. I wanted to know if they believed in God for heaven. It was important to me to know that I hadn't robbed them of an afterlife. I was raised to believe in God, even if my parents didn't always act like they did. And in 2009, I dedicated the rest of my life to doing His work in whatever way I could. I'm a servant in our local church and classes and programs that help other inmates find the support they need to overcome addictions and the emotional issues that put them in prison. It's the least I can do for what I've done, trying to give something back. Also, I didn't run them over on purpose. I still can't believe the people I loved and considered friends thought that I did. I just don't get it. I've asked myself why for 25 years. I still can't make sense of that. You see, as I was turning the stolen van around, Jason tried to do the same with my car, but he wrecked it against a tree on the hillside. Before he had wrecked, he had pulled up past the family where he shot them, putting my car between them and the van, as well as sticking halfway out in the one-lane dirt county road. When we abandoned my car and piled into the van, I had to get past it. So I had to get up on the shoulder of the dirt road and swerve back pretty hard to keep from getting stranded on the side of the most horrible thing to ever happen in my life. I felt the tire hit them and it still makes me sick to my stomach even now. I'll never forget it. And all I can do is promise that it wasn't on purpose. It's a real kick in the teeth, especially all of these years later. As for the satanic rumors, my understanding is that Natasha's first lawyer, someone her mom tried to hire out of Kentucky, 
who wanted to try and get her off on an insanity defense. I heard that he gave an interview claiming that she believed she was the devil's daughter before we were ever extradited and he was fired shortly afterwards, but the damage was done. I think his name was Eric Kahn or something. I do not put it past Sue to agree with and spread rumors about me. I opposed her getting with Marty until she trapped him with the baby. We never liked each other, so she may have said anything to hurt me. And Marty may not have opposed her for their family's sake. Marty loved his kids and would have done anything for them, including abandoning a sinking ship like me. In any case, I must close this letter if this is ever going to reach you. This is my third attempt to write to you, and I still don't know that I've done the proper thing. I'm accepting whatever. However, I'm sorry. I'm not ready to do more. Thank you, Joseph Reisner. Did Joe run over the family intentionally? I don't know. That may be a question that never gets answered, as it honestly just depends on who you believe and how you interpret the evidence. I found Joe's description of the group as hurtling teenagers trying to escape their own personal hells to be the most accurate portrayal yet of the group. I also found myself thinking how remorseful he sounded for the crimes. And he also takes a lot of responsibility for what transpired, and at times you could hear the guilt. He said he found God in 2009, and his discipline record would indicate this to be true, as he has not been in trouble since. We all know Eric Kahn started the satanic rumors that Bell latched onto. It is my belief that Bell and TBI gave Marty and Sue Tincare to testify to the satanic rumors, incentivizing witnesses to fabricate a theory about a satanic vampire cult. So far, the state hasn't tried hard to prove me wrong. Next, I have Joe's life story. This was not provided by Joe, but pulled directly from some appeal paperwork. Nonetheless, I found it interesting, and if Joe provides his later on, we'll be able to compare. So here is Joe's life story. Joe Reisner was born on October the 13th, 1976 in Hazard, Kentucky. He had no record as a juvenile, and as an adult, his only charge was in Pike County, Kentucky for custodial interference with Karen Howe and Jason Bryant on the same day as the Lily Lid murders. Reisner never met his biological father. His mother, Mary, was married briefly to Reisner's father, Christopher Johns, but the two divorced before he was born. His mother has been married twice since. Reisner has had a good relationship with both of his stepfathers. Reisner was only two years old when his mother married Ray Reisner. Although never adopted by his stepfather, Reisner chose his surname. He calls Ray Reisner dad. The family lived in Columbia, Kentucky, where Reisner started school. 
His academic record from kindergarten to the third grade was good. He played Little League Baseball and liked dogs. In August of 1986, the family moved to Georgia where Reisner started the fourth grade. Ray Reisner started a construction business there. During the summers, Reisner did odd jobs around the construction sites and Reisner paid him $3.50 per hour. Ray Reisner says that Reisner developed a good work ethic. Reisner's stepfather began to use marijuana, alcohol, and cocaine, and his mother also used marijuana and cocaine. In early 1988, they separated when Ray Reisner had an affair with one of his wife's closest friends. The separation upset Joe. One year later, the couple reconciled, but they separated when Joe was 12. Reisner's grades slipped dramatically after he failed the seventh grade. At the age of 14, Reisner returned to Kentucky with his mother where they lived with Mary Reisner's sister, Josephine. Joe became actively involved in the Pentecostal church with Mary and Ray Reisner finally divorced in 1991. Ray Reisner was not required to pay child support. Joe and his mother had no further contact with Ray Reisner until after the Lily Lid murders. Reisner had a history of marijuana, alcohol, and LSD usage. At the sentencing hearings, he testified that he first used marijuana at the age of 10 and that he first tried LSD at the age of 11. At age 12, he had sexual relationships with two of his babysitters. While in middle school, Reisner's academic record was poor. He mostly made Fs during his eighth grade year and was to repeat the eighth grade. Transcripts, however, indicate that he enrolled in the ninth grade the following fall. By this time, he wore long hair and an earring. He felt rejected by his stepfather. In 1992, Reisner's mother began taking classes at a community college. She married Larry Castle in October of 1993. Joe had a good relationship with Castle, whom he called Papa. The family regularly smoked marijuana together, and in the 10th grade, Reisner's grades began to improve. The family moved, to the, moved in the winter of 1993 to Size Rock, Kentucky. Reisner finished the 10th grade at his new school. In the summer of 1994, the family moved to Iville, Kentucky. At the age of 18, Joe started his 11th grade in Iville at Betsy Lane High School where he met Natasha Cornett, Karen Howe, Dean Mullins, and Crystal Sturgill. Joe began to date Natasha Cornett. Joe's mother disliked Cornett because she found her to be disrespectful. Reisner and Cornett dated only a short time but maintained a friendship. Joe began to date Karen Howe for the first time in early 1995. He was 18 and she was 15 at the time. On April 25, 1995, Larry Castle was involved in a car accident which resulted in the death of the driver and a serious injury to the passenger. Castle pled guilty to charges of reckless homicide and second-degree assault. In June of 1995, Reisner joined the Army but received an administration discharge after testing positive for marijuana. During the late summer of 1995, Reisner moved back to Leslie, Kentucky to complete the 12th grade. In the first semester, he generally made good grades. He withdrew from school in March of 1996, citing family problems surrounding the stepfather's conviction. 
The following year, Joe moved in with a friend and tried to enroll at Betsy Lane High School, but denied because he was 19 years old. He earned a GED on May 29, 1996. Joe returned to his family in June of 1996. The following month, Castle was sentenced to five years in prison, an event which devastated Joe and his mother. They visited Castle at prison nearly every day. Joe was accepted at Mayo Regional Technical Center in September of 96. He received Pell Grants to cover the cost. He made A's, B's, and C's in the first two terms and made new friends. He continu continued to visit his friends from Betsy Lane High School every weekend that fall. In January of 1997, Reisner began his third term at Mayo. Two months later, he renewed his relationship with Karen Howe, who was then living with Natasha Cornett. Cornett was dating Dean Mullins. Reisner claimed that he, deeply, he was deeply in love with Howe. At the sentencing hearing, Dr. Robbins, a psychiatrist, testified that the crimes did not fit with Reisner's previous life history. She also indicated her belief that he would pose no behavioral problems while incarcerated. She concluded that Reisner was extremely remorseful for the crimes. Her diagnosis of Reisner was that he was borderline personality disorder and polysubstance abuse. Dr. Robbins indicated that the borderline personality disorder typically associated with childhood trauma and or neglect by primary caretakers has the core of characteristic of instability. According to Dr. Robbins, borderline personality types resort to self-defeating and ineffective ways of coping, or simply fall apart and decompensate under the weight of unimaginable emotions. At the conclusion of the sentence hearing, the trial court ruled as follows. It was your car driven by you. You made the trip. You held the guns on the lily lids at the picnic table. You got the ball rolling and the kidnapping. You rode in the vans with the little lids begging, crying, and singing, and with a gun in your hand, and Peter in the baby seat. You deliberately ran over the little lids. You drove the getaway van. You were a leader. Not the leader, but a leader. You had the presence of mind to take the tag from your car and your papers and clothes at the scene. that concludes this week's episode of The Devil Came Knocking. There is debate amongst the group as to whether Joe intentionally ran over the Lily Lid family or not. I'm hoping to get Joe to provide his life story and do an interview, but I'm not sure if that will happen or not. It does strike me as odd, though, Joe would tell the truth about initiating the robbery, holding the family up for the van, and running them over, but lie about his intentions. I look forward to talking to him further and will share with you when and if he agrees. I hope you enjoyed this episode. See you next week.